Uh, great to be with you. Uh, my name is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to be going into our time of teaching in just a minute, but I also have two or three important announcements. I just want to uh, highlight a couple of things. I'm really excited about this partnership we're doing with the Department of, of uh, Children and Health. It's just an amazing opportunity. You know, here at Rocky Peak, several times a year, we do what we call a generosity initiative, where we just really reach out to, to serve Jesus in really practical ways to meet the needs of people who are going through really hard times. Often, you know, overseas, sometimes locally. We just did one at Easter. We did our water well initiative, and you, you all, uh, as a church, gave over $30,000 to that water well initiative. And uh, so this is just another opportunity to serve here locally, and our goal is to raise over um, $15,000. And you can actually just go on the, that website. You can pick out things you want to give, but it's a great opportunity. Uh, secondly, I'm really excited about this essential that's coming up. He just talked about the message. It's the first time we We've done it live in over 10 years. And I'm really excited about it. It's going to be an incredible opportunity. But for those of you who are signing up, this is a hot tip is that you actually need to be doing some study before the first week. You need to get a book and you need to do some study before the first week. So essentials kind of, they, uh, they combine like uh, in, in, uh, in-course teaching, but with homework you do ahead of time. And so you're going to need to get a book. You're going to need to do some reading even before the first class. So if you're considering that, uh, don't wait till the first night like, oh, I miss it, all right? And then finally, uh, just real quick, is that I sent out this uh, last Friday, we sent out a ministry update letter. And as you know, California is reopening, finally, uh, on June 15th. And we're very excited about that. And so as a church, we're going to be doing that as well. And so what that means is that masks will become optional at that time. If you still want to wear one, you can. But uh, if you want to kind of lose the mask, you're also welcome to do that. It's all of our services and ministry, really kids through uh, adults. And so we've got one more week of that. I know some of you are very anxious to jump the gun, um, but uh, you're like, what are you talking about? I'm a mascot and I'm just uh, here. Uh, but I try not to look at you. Anyway, uh, so uh, we're excited about that and uh, looking forward to this new season as we move into the summer together. But anyway, we're going to go into our time of teaching. And so if you haven't done so already, inside your uh, message, uh, your program is a message note sheet. For those of you who are joining us uh, online, you can download that from which whatever uh, website you're using to, to watch us, YouTube or our uh, own online uh, service. You can get that there. You'll definitely need that. And if you're all ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here uh, to come under your leadership as a church and to be listening and following what it looks like to follow you. And today as we come to this incredibly important passage in the Gospel of John, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit is speaking to us as a church and what it's speaking to us individually. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, our story starts today once again in the desert. And uh, it's a spring day. They've been out here for about a month. And honestly, when they started this journey, they were super excited. The anticipation was high. Uh, Everyone was really into this. But uh, but now we're about a month in. And uh, this adventure is getting a bit old. We're moving from spring towards summer. The days are are warming up, and yet the nights are still cool and chilly. Um, The road, they've they've been on the road now for a month, and uh, that's getting tiring. The terrain is getting more challenging. Um, 
But one of the biggest challenges is that they're just sick of the food that they're eating. They're just tired. I don't know if you've ever been backpacking. You know, it's like that freeze-dried stuff is okay in the short run. But after a while, you know, it starts getting old. And they're, they're, just, they're just getting tired of their limited diet. And even more than that, they're actually beginning to run out of food. Many are starting to wonder, like, what they're going to do. There's no plans in the immediate future for, like, a replenishment. And so there's a, there's a rumbling. There's a, there's a growing bitterness. There's a frustration and uh, as he watches this in, in this group, he's wondering where this is gonna go because it seems obvious to him that if this doesn't get resolved in the near future, that a rebellion is in the making. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in for several months now called Signs, A Path to Light. And for those of you who are, are brand new, whether you're here in the worship center, you're out in the patio, maybe you're joining us online, uh, special welcome. Um, this is a series about Jesus. It's actually an in-depth look at the life of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers and, and friend, a man that we call John or the Apostle John, who uh, towards the end of his life is writing his account of his experiences with Jesus, kind of the life and teaching of Jesus based on his firsthand experiences while traveling with him over a period of two to three years. And in this gospel that he's writing, this short bio of the life of Jesus, he's, uh, he's really focusing in on, on highlighting seven major supernatural signs, seven of the many that Jesus performed that help us understand who Jesus is and why he came and the, what, we're, what we're calling this series, The Path to Life for Our Lives. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing in on two of the seven that come in rapid succession. Uh, the first we looked at a couple weeks ago when Dre was teaching, and we, we watched as uh, Jesus had gone to the, the northeastern shores of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, the crowds had found him there. And, uh, and while he was there after a day of teaching, of healing, and so on, that uh, he fed the multitude supernaturally uh, with one child's happy meal out of uh, five rolls and two small fish, which were very popular in those days. And, uh, and he fed this crowd of 5,000 men and their families, perhaps as many as 10 to 20,000 people. And, and this happened, this sign happened at the time of Passover. And so for this Jewish crowd, when they, when they see Jesus supernaturally feeding this huge mass of people in the wilderness, it conjures up images, triggers reminders of uh, a time in their history when God led them out of Egypt uh, at the Passover and where he led them through the Red Sea and then where Moses provided for them what they call bread from heaven, manna to feed them in the wilderness. And so uh, Moses had also said that one day that God would raise up another great prophet. Some saw him as the ultimate Messiah who would come. Uh, who, would, who would lead them. And so as this is happening in the wilderness, this crowd is putting two and two together. They're saying, this must be the prophet. This must be the great king who was promised. And so they wanted to force Jesus to be their Messiah. Now, of course, if this had happened, this would have been a disaster because a rebellion like that would have brought down the wrath of Rome and led to the murder and the slaughter of this crowd, but also it would have led to the end of the movement that Jesus was actually launching. 
And so Jesus jumps into action, and right away he forces his disciples to get out of harm's way, sends them down to the one boat they'd come in, sends them off, get them, get them out of the situation. He dismisses the crowd, then he goes up into the hills to pray. That night then comes the next sign, the fifth of the seven signs, is in the middle of the night, early in the morning hours, he walks to his disciples in the midst of a storm, calms the storm. We talked about that last week. Now, now to the passage we're looking at today is the very next day. What happens next, all right? So if you have your Bibles, when open up, you have your apps, open up to John chapter six, and we're gonna pick it up at verse 22. There in your note, she's a section called Signs, the Bread of Life. So it's a fairly long passage, so let's, uh, let's dig in. So, uh, in 622, it says the next day, so this is the day after Jesus fed the 5,000, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake. So if you kind of picture the Sea of Galilee in your mind, this would be the, the northeastern shore. Uh, they had followed Jesus there. Now they wake up in the morning and he's gone. They, they know that only one boat was there, that the disciples went in the one boat. They know he went up in the mountains. So like, where's Jesus? They can't find him. And so it says, uh, the, next, the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake, they realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered in it with his disciples, but that, uh, but that they had gone away alone. And so right about then, some boats from Tiberias, so that's a Roman city on the, the far side of the, the Sea of Galilee, the western side, they, they landed. They're coming looking for Jesus too. Um, they land near the place uh, near where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they all get in their boats and they go back to the far side of the sea to the northwestern corner of the Sea of Galilee to the, to the city of Capernaum, which is Jesus' home base. And so when they find him on the other side of the lake, they ask him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, what they really want to know is how did you get here? But instead of asking, they say, when did you get there? And what notice that Jesus, once again, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, when people ask a question or they introduce, he rarely responds to what they say. He responds to the heart of the issue. And so he goes right at the heart of the issue, and he says, very truly. Now, we, we see those words, very truly. What does that mean? Amen. Good. We're, we're, chapter 6, we should get it by now. Amen, amen. In the Greek, it's amen, amen. It's what, it's what Jesus says when he's about to say something very important. Don't miss it. So he says, amen, amen. I tell you, you are looking for me, but not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus just cuts to the chase. He says, I know you're searching for me, but you're looking for me for the wrong reason. The reason you're looking for me is you put this narrative together in your head. You, you have this narrative you're fitting me into. That I fed the 5,000, you saw that miracle, it, it reminded you of what Moses had done. You're, you're, you're jumping into, you're, you're assuming that I'm the prophet, you're assuming that I'm the Messiah, and, and the reason you're following me is not because you want to listen and follow me, but because you want me to do more of the same. You want me to do the miracles again. You want me not only to be the king that frees you from Rome like Moses freed you from Egypt. 
you want me to be your bread king. You want me to do for you what Caesar does in Rome, free bread for the crowds. You're, you're looking for me, but you're, coming, you're searching for the wrong reason. And so he goes on, and he says, you're searching for me not because you saw the signs I performed. See, the signs should have been a signal to who Jesus was. They should have identified him as the Messiah, and they're ready to really follow him for whatever he tells them, but they're not. He says, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So he says, do not work for the food which spoils. Don't just live life on the physical plane, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, which is his favorite name for himself, will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. That's what the signs are about, the seal of approval. That Jesus has come from God. They need to be listening and following him. And then they asked him, well, what, what must we do to do the works that God requires? You said we need, we need to work for the, this, the eternal, this, this food that endures. What must we do? And Jesus said, well, the work of God is this. It's to believe in the one he sent. The work is not really a work. The work is really to trust your lives to me. And so they asked him, well, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors eat the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them, quote, bread from heaven to eat, which is a quote from Exodus 16. So they said, so, okay, so you want us to believe in you. What sign will you do? Now, you're thinking, I just fed 20,000 people (laughs) from one kid's Happy Meal yesterday. But let's back it up and let's see what they're really asking. You see, they have this narrative of who Jesus is and who the Messiah will be. He'll, he'll kick out Rome. He'll, he'll give us free food like Moses did for 40 years. This takes us back to the story we started the day with. We started the day with a story about this, this group of people that has set out on a journey in the springtime of the year but now it's a month later, and the journey's getting old, the days are getting warmer, the nights are still cold, they're getting tired, they have a long way to go. They're getting tired of their food rations, and they're, they're beginning to worry they're gonna run out of food. And you can hear this grumbling, this rebellion in the making. This is my version of the account of the nation of Israel in Exodus 16. And so in Exodus 16, the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt, God through the Red Sea, God destroyed the, the Pharaoh and his armies. Uh, and now it's a month later, and they're beginning to run out of food, and a rebellion is beginning to form. Like, we should have stayed in, Mos- we should have stayed in Egypt. They had plenty of food there. Um, why'd you bring us out here to die? And so God responds to that. And he says to Moses, in fact, the verse is there on your note sheet in Exodus 16, 4, he says that I will give them bread from heaven. And if you remember the account that the next morning when they woke up that there was this kind of funny substance on the ground that uh, they were able to collect and then either bake it or boil it and they were to make bread out of it. We, they called it manna. And if, but if you remember, how often did that manna come? 
How, help me out. How, how often did it come? Yeah, every day, six days a week, right? None of the stuff. How, how long did it last? It lasted, yeah, well, yeah, the man lasted for you, but how long, how many times did God do that miracle? For 40 years. So what they're really asking is, well, that was great. That was a great one-off yesterday. What we want is do it again. See, they were fixing, they, they were kind of putting Jesus into their narrative, what a Messiah should be. And they're asking him to do it again. And so in verse 32, Jesus said to them, very truly, which means? Amen. amen. We're going to see it three times today. Amen, amen. He said, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. In other words, that, that manna was almost like a spiritual picture. Sometimes we call this a type in the Old Testament, like an Old Testament event that speaks of a greater reality that would one day be fulfilled. And Jesus says that, that manna was like a picture of the greater bread from heaven that would one day come and give life to the world. And so he says, verse 33, for the bread of heaven is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, once again, they're gonna take him very literally. Do you remember back in John chapter four, the woman at the well, and Jesus offered her this, this water of living water, and she said, give me that water so I don't have to come here every day to draw. So she took it very literally. People are constantly doing that with Jesus. And so this is gonna happen again. So they, they said, well, give us this bread. They think he's talking about like miracle bread, you know, like wonder bread or something. And so Jesus said, no, listen, you don't understand. I am the bread. And whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Remember what he told the woman at the well? Whoever drinks of this water will become, it will become like a spring of living water. They'll spring up to eternal life. It will satisfy the deepest thirst. Very similar kind of statement here. And he says, but as I told you, you have seen me and you still don't believe. So he's been with them a long time. They've seen lots of the signs. They've heard him teach. But he says, the reality is you still don't believe who I really am. And he said, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. He says, so most of you don't believe. You're not coming. But those who do, the minority, he says, this is a beautiful promise to us. Is that anyone who comes to me honestly, I will never turn away. I don't care what you've done, where you've been. If you want this new life, this offer is on the table. And he says uh, in verse 38, for I have come down out of heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's what we've seen Jesus say over and over again. His passion is due to the will of the Father. And he said, and this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of those he's given me, but raise them up on the last day. So as most of you are not gonna come to me. He says, but those who do, I will never turn away. And when you come, I'm gonna hold on to you to the end of time. And when the next life comes, I'm gonna raise you up and you're gonna live with me forever in this new world that's coming. And he says, for this is, verse 40, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son 
and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, this is beginning to bother them. What he's saying is beginning to bother because as far as they know, in their opinion, Jesus is a local boy. Yeah, he grew up in Nazareth, you know, what, 17 miles away or whatever, but he's moved here recently to Capernaum. He moved his family here. We saw that back in chapter two. We know him. We knew his mom. We know who his dad was. We know his brother. It's like, what are you talking about that I've come down from heaven? And uh, so they said in verse 41, and the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus? He's the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How can he say, I come down from heaven? But Jesus just stops him. He says, stop grumbling. He said, listen, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. He says, I've already told you this. Most of you don't believe. He says, the reality is that it's impossible for someone to come to me and realize who I am apart from the supernatural work of my Father in their life. And this is what we're gonna see all the way through the Gospel of John is these these two twin truths that we always wanna hold together. That when someone comes to Jesus, it's a result of God's supernatural work in our life. And yet, we are each responsible for the choices we make and how we respond to the truth about God. These two truths we see all through the New Testament, God's choice and our choice, both are taught strongly on the surface. They seem to be contradictory. There's a mystery here, but the the New Testament constantly holds them together. God's choice and our choice. And so he says... um, So he says, no one, verse 44, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up in the last day. He says, it's written in the prophets, and he's gonna quote here from Isaiah, they will all be taught by God. He says, that's what's happening right now. He said, everyone who's heard from the Father and learned from him comes to me. They recognize in me the voice of the Father. He says, so no one has seen the Father except the one who's from God. Only he has seen the Father very truly. Amen, amen. Amen. I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. Catch this. We've talked about this throughout the Gospel of John. But remember, eternal life is not something that starts after we die. The eternal life starts here and now. The moment when a person comes to Jesus, we cross over that invisible line between spiritual death and spiritual life. We come alive. No one can ever take that from us. We will never die in that sense. And then at the end of time, he says, I will raise him up and you'll get your new body. So he says, uh, very truly, uh, in verse 47, the one who believes has present tense eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven and whoever eats the, this bread will live forever. And then he begins to move into new territory and this bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. And so Jesus is beginning to transition this this teaching from I am the bread of life who's come down to give life to how will that bread of life give life to the world. And we're gonna see next week, he's gonna tie together his giving of life, our receiving of life to his death 
that's coming up about a year from now in the, in the next Passover, about a year from now, right? But for today, we're gonna stop there, and I wanna focus on this amazing claim Jesus makes to be the bread of heaven, the bread of life, uh, that through him, that uh, the one who eats of him will never hunger, will never thirst, and this challenge that he issues to the crowd of why are you seeking me? He, he challenges them today. So today, what we're gonna do is I'm just gonna ask one single question, all right? One single question that's gonna help us to get at this teaching of Jesus and some of the implications for our life. So there in your note sheet, you have signs, one simple question. The question is very simple. Why are you following Jesus? What I wanna reflect on today is if you claim to be a follower, and if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is a great question for you because you need to say, well, like, why would you follow Jesus? Uh, why, would, why will you make that decision? But for those of us here that we see ourselves as a follower of Jesus, the question is, why are you following Jesus? And this is really the question, this is the issue that Jesus is raising with this crowd. Because this crowd is pursuing Jesus and they are passionate about Jesus. There's no question they're following Jesus. There's no question that they are passionate about Jesus. The question is why are they following Jesus? Now, if we went to the other gospels and we looked at the account of the feeding of 5,000, this is what we'd find. Here is how that story begins that the disciples had been out on mission two by two, sharing about the kingdom of God, healing the sick, uh, and uh, freeing people from demonizations. They come back with great news that the, the mission has gone really well, but Jesus knows that they need some R&R. So he says, let's get into the boat. Let's go to the far side of the Galilee where no one lives over there. Let's get away by ourselves. We need some rest. But we're told in the Gospels that when they got there, that the crowd was so excited about Jesus, they had put two and two together, that they had raced around the northern shore of the lake, and that when he got there, the crowd was waiting. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this sort of experience, but you've been planning on going on vacation, and everything is set, and you're so excited, and then something breaks in your house, something breaks in your car, some emergency comes up at work, and everything has to be put on hold. It's not a happy moment, right? And this is what happened, but what we're told is that Jesus, his compassion goes out to the crowd because they're like sheep without a shepherd. So we're told that he, he comes in that day, that he lands his boat instead of saying like, uh-oh, let's go the other way. He continues to the shore, and he spends his whole day teaching the crowds and healing. And it's at the end of that exhausting day that he feeds the 5,000 and their families. Now, you remember that from John's gospel, we know that when they saw this sign, they're putting two and two together and then, and then forcing their narrative into it. Okay, we've been watching Jesus do all these miracles. Now he's done this incredible miracle at Passover Feeding, the five, feeding thousands of people like Moses. He must be the prophet. He must be the king. They're ready to make him king. Jesus has to diffuse the situation, go up to pray and so on. But catch us, the next day, they're still feeling that, that campaign excitement. 
They get up in the morning, where's Jesus? We got to find Jesus. So are you with me? These people are following Jesus. They're chasing him around the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Now they're chasing him back to Capernaum. They can't wait to get to Jesus. They're passionate followers of Jesus. However, they are following Jesus for the wrong reason. And what I want you to catch is that when they get there and they're asking their question, hey, when did you get here? Just trying to make some conversation. Like Jesus always does. You remember the woman at the well? He just kind of cuts to the chase. You remember Nicodemus? Oh, you're a great teacher of the law. And you must be separate from God. Yeah, whatever. You have to be born again. Jesus always goes to the heart of the issue. And right here, when they're coming, they're so excited about it. He goes to the heart of the issue. You know why? Because he knows that they're seeking him for the wrong reason. And he knows that when you pursue Jesus for the wrong reason, chances are sooner or later you will leave him. And so he is going to go right to the issue. Why are you following me? In fact, he doesn't even ask the question because he knows the answer. And this is what he says there in your note sheet. So Jesus answered, very truly, amen, amen. So first thing he says to them. I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed. That would be a good reason. You saw the signs. You realize who I am, that I am the king, and you're coming after me because you want me to tell you the path to life. That would be a good reason, but that's not why you're following me. You're following me because you put two and two together. You've inserted your own narrative into the facts you have recreated Messiah in your own image. And now the reason you're following me is because you think I'm gonna kick out Rome and I'm gonna provide you with free bread and I'm gonna make life comfortable for you. And he said, that's not why I've come. Don't seek the food which perishes this life. Seek the food that will endure for eternity. Amen. The things that matter most. And so it raises a question for us of why are we, why are you, let's keep it personal for each of us, why are you pursuing Jesus? Because what we see today is there are many reasons we can pursue Jesus. And some are good and some are not. And just like in their life, sometimes it's easy to create our own narrative of God's will for our life and then recreate Jesus who becomes a means to the end. And we, become to, we start to follow Jesus not because we love Jesus, but because we love what we believe Jesus will do for us. Let me give you an example. Sometimes today, we can follow Jesus because we believe Jesus will solve all our problems. Hey, I'm gonna follow Jesus because he's gonna bless me financially. He's gonna provide me with the perfect spouse. Uh, he'll make me successful in my career. He will heal my illness or protect me from ever getting a serious illness. 
that he'll protect my life from tragedy. I'll never experience tragedy. My kids will never experience tragedy. And we begin to pursue Jesus. We're following Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. We're not following Jesus for who he is, but for what he does. And what we've seen all through the Gospel of John is that Jesus has come not just to make our life like comfortable or easy, that he's come to transform us. He's come to restore our relationship with God, forgive us our sins. He's come to give us the life we were created to live on the inside. He's come to satisfy this deepest need of the human heart, what he calls his thirst, his deepest hunger, the deepest thirst through our relationship with our creator. And he's come to deal with our sins so that when the end, at the end of time comes that we will live with him forever. This is why he's come. Now, there's no question, and if you've been walking with Jesus any length of time at all, there's no question that there's many times that the Lord blesses us, doesn't he? He blesses us. He, there's times he blesses us financially. There's times he protects us from harm. There's times he heals us. It's not that he doesn't do that, just like he did then. But it's not the primary reason why we follow him. We follow him because of who he is. And because of this relationship he invites us into, because of this passion we have for him and this new life he calls us to. You know, years ago, I, I read a, a quote from Rick Warren. I honestly don't remember where it's from. It may be from his book, The Purpose Driven Life. But you know, if you're not familiar, Rick is a pastor of a large church down in um, Orange County. But this is a, an, an amazing quote. It's there on, your, on the back of your note sheet. He says, people ask me what is the purpose of life. So this may be from his book. I just can't remember. Um, and I respond, well, in a nutshell, life is pre preparation for eternity. We were made to last forever, and God wants us to be with him in heaven. I would say in the new heavens and new earth. One day, my heart is going to stop, and that will be the end of my body, but it's not the end of me. I may live 60 to 100 years on earth, but I'm going to spend trillions of years in eternity. This is the warm-up act, the dress rehearsal. God wants us to practice on earth what we will do forever in eternity. We were made by God and for God, and until you figure that out, life isn't going to make sense. Life is a series of problems. Remember we, last week we talked about storms? Life is a series of problems. Either you're in one now, you're just coming out of one, or you're getting ready to go into another one. The reason for this, catch this, is that God is more interested in your character than your comfort. Can you underline that? He's come to transform us to be the people we are created to be. He's more interested in making your life holy than he is making your life happy. He said, we can be reasonably happy here on earth, but that's not the goal in this life. The goal is to grow in character and Christ-likeness. And then he talks about the situation he's been learning in his life. He said, this past year has been the greatest year of my life, but it's also been the toughest with my wife, Kay, getting cancer. I used to think that life was hills and valleys, 
You go through a dark time, then you go to the mountaintop back and forth, but I don't believe that anymore. Rather than light being hills and valleys, I believe it's kind of like two rails on a railroad track. And at all times, you have something good and something bad in your life. Isn't that true? He said, we discovered quickly that in spite of the prayers of hundreds of thousands of people, God was not going to heal Kay or make it easy for her. It's been very difficult for her, and yet God has strengthened her character, given her a ministry of helping other people, given her a testimony, and drawn her closer to him and to people. And I want you to think with me about these men listening to Jesus that day there in Capernaum. I want you to think about his disciples. What we're going to see next week is that, that Jesus is just getting warmed up. Okay, in this message, he's just getting warmed up. He's about to get intentionally offensive. Every once in a while here at Rocky Peak, I'll say, I'll, I'll give a message and I'll say, that was a thinning the herd message. <laughs> like, that's a message that's not popular to get, it's not easy to hear. We're going to thin the herd. People are coming, they just want to be entertained or something. They're not going to stand for that. And say, so I, I can't take that message. That's too harsh. That's too hard, right? Well, Jesus is the ultimate thinning the herd messenger. Amen. And next week, we're going to look at an incredible passage where it's almost like he goes out of his way to be offensive. But the reason he's doing it is to help them get in touch with reality. They're not following him for the right reason. The sooner they know that, the better. And so he's going to challenge him in some amazing ways. And when he gets done with the message next week, everyone's going to leave him and he's going to turn around about the only ones left are his disciples. And he's going to say to them, are you going to leave too? And I love this because what Peter says is, Lord, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Way to go, Peter. And you are right on point. You are right on point. And, you know, I was thinking this week through the lives of those men. You know, Judas is going to commit suicide after he betrays Jesus. But you know, of the other 11 men, think of what's in their future. These 11 men that are left, 10 of them are going to give their lives for Jesus. 10 of them. Right? The only one who isn't is going to be the apostle John who survives persecution to the end of his life, write this gospel. That, that these men are not going to become wealthy. Their life is not easier because they follow Jesus. But you know what? Their life is better. <laughs> because they've come to know their creator. They've been restored on the inside. They've come to know the God who has created them. They have fallen in love with this Jesus who's given them meaning and purpose and the path to life. And they're passionate about him. They will go on to change the world. There'll be nothing that can stop them. Peter, when he writes in 1 Peter, in a time of persecution, he will, sit, he will describe his inner life as joy unspeakable and full of glory because he has found life. It's not physical life. His physical life is not easy. He's not become wealthy, right? He's gone through a lot, but he's on passion and fire because he has eaten of the bread of life and he has satisfied the deepest hunger in his life, and he knows it doesn't matter what you do to me, you cannot take me out. You can kill me, my body, but you cannot stop my life that Jesus has given me. Because whoever eats of the bread of life will live forever. 
We no longer have to fear death. We no longer have to fear death because we have received eternal life. And for us, physical death is just stepping over a line from this life into life that is really life. See, nothing can stop the believer. And this is why it's so important, and this is such an important message for us to hear. As men and women, you know this. For the last five years, I've been telling you the cost for following Jesus is going up in our culture. And we have seen it more in this last year than in the previous 10 years together. The cost of becoming a follower, it's going up. Our culture is becoming anti-Christ. We are living increasingly in an anti-Christ culture. And the cost of following Jesus is going up. And so we better be asking the question, so why are we following him? Because if we're following him to make this life comfortable, to make this life easier, so I'll be successful, chances are, when the challenges come, we will do exactly what this crowd's going to do next week, and they're going to leave him yeah. and no longer follow him. And so it's time for us to be asking, as a church, as followers of Jesus, we need to be asking, why are we following him? Are we following him because he is God, and he is God, and we are not and we belong to him, and we were created for him, and he is our joy, and he alone has the path to life, both this life and the next? Are we following him because, like this crowd, we are looking for a contemporary bread king? Let's pray together. Father, we just come in your name, and Lord, these are heavy things. And next week, Lord, we're going to watch you just challenge this crowd. You're going to make it difficult for them to follow you. You're going to almost like intentionally drive them away, not because you don't love them, but because you do. And because they need to know where they stand. They need to know where they stand with you. And so, Lord, we come today and we pray that you would be taking us deeper. We pray, Lord, that our vision would be for you and not just the gifts that you give, that our love would be for you, our surrender would be for you, and you'd fill us with this life, this new life you've come to give us that satisfies the deepest hunger of the human heart, this need for, this need for meaning and purpose and life and joy and love and peace, this power to be transformed that only you can give. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen.